And so there were so many bad things that had happened that there were senior NCOs who who wanted to see the the um, atmosphere change. There were some officers. Uh, I had four or five squadron commanders working for me, and they had just gotten there, and they're really good officers, and no one wanted to be at Spangdong because of the terrible reputation. Or we can change the reputation and make it a great place to be. Good afternoon and welcome to the Polaris Hall podcast. My name is C2C Maya Mandiam, here with my co-host C1C Jack Wachtel, and our special guest with us today, Dr. Richard B. Wright, English professor at the USAFA Writing Center and a graduate from the class of 1970. Welcome to the show. Thank you. To start us out, can you give us a quick elevator pitch of how you got here today? Yes. Um, I was a graduate, as you mentioned, in 1970. We went out into the Air Force, spent 30 years in aircraft maintenance. Uh, while I was stationed in England the second time, I became interested in British literature. I was reading it voraciously and made this sort of pipe dream. I said, you know, when I get out of the Air Force, I'm going to go back to school and get a degree in, in English. So I, after 30 years, I got out of the Air Force, went back to school and got a PhD in English, which I thought I would probably be teaching literature. Uh, so I studied British literature. But ever since I've uh, received my PhD, every job I've been offered had to do with technical writing. So people say, well, gee, you have 30 years of engineering and you have a PhD in English. Perfect thing is to teach technical writing. So my last eight years, I, I've been teaching technical writing at various schools, and a job opened here four years ago, and said, you should come interview, and I did, and three days later, I was working here. They needed someone to fill quickly, so that's how I ended up in the writing center. Awesome, sir. So, to start us off, can you go a little bit more into your maintenance career? You're a maintenance officer, correct? Yeah. Um, so, I entered maintenance kind of in a funny way. I came here, my father had been a pilot, instructor pilot, and I had flown with him as a kid, and I had every intention of flying, and I thought coming to the academy was the most sure way of ending up with a pilot slot. And while I was here, I grew four inches. I entered, I was 6'4 when I entered, just barely under the limits, uh, and when I graduated, I was 6'8. Two months before I graduated, the Surgeon General passed a degree or whatever that said, um, you're not going to be able to fly. You don't fit in aircraft with uh, ejection seats, so what else would you like to do? In those days, we didn't have career fairs. I had no idea what other jobs were in the Air Force, and my AOC suggested if I wanted to stay as close to the mission as possible, um, aircraft maintenance was probably the best job. So really, on the basis of one recommendation, I went signed up for maintenance, went to maintenance school at uh, Chanute Air Force Base. Uh, it was a year-long school. Then uh, my first assignment was at Luke Air Force Base, and all of my time in maintenance has been on fighters. So at Luke, I was we had F-100s, um, just about to go out of the inventory, F-4s, uh, F-15s, A-7s, F-104s. Um, then uh, from there, I went to uh, Upper Hayford, England for the first time. I was on F-111s for three years. Um, and then I went to headquarters USAFE. I was the director of uh, propulsion systems, all jet engines, uh, small uh, gas uh, generating engines. Um, from there, um, while I was in England the first time, I um, got a master's degree in international relations and I wanted to come back and teach at the academy. 
And <clears throat> while I was in Germany, I got notification that I was my assignment uh, was being curtailed and I was coming to teach at the academy. The maintenance guy said they weren't going to release me. He said, anybody can teach at the academy. We're going to keep you in maintenance. So I saw the, order, the assignment. I thought, well, I'm not really going to get to go to the academy. He said, no, it was signed by a three-star, and it's a by-name request. I said, really, to teach political science? No. Do you know anything about fencing? I said, yes. I've been a fencer as a, as a student here. Are you going to go coach the fencing team? So for three years, I came back here, and I coached the fencing team, and, and I also got to teach in the poli-sci department, so that was kind of fun. From there, back to uh, Germany uh, in a division position overseeing uh, aircraft battle damage repair, um, the jet engine community as well, and so on. I was there for a year, and then they moved me back to Upper Hayford on 111s, and I was a squadron commander for a component repair squadron, about 650 people. And then I did that for two years, then into the aircraft generating squadron, did that for a year. Um, from there, I, by that time I was a lieutenant colonel, I was, wanted to be a chief of maintenance. That's kind of like the best job in the Air Force to be a chief of maintenance. Now it's called a maintenance group commander, then it was called a DCM, deputy commander for maintenance. But I was too junior to go to a, a DCM job, so I had to kind of find a place to hang out. So I went to 17th Air Force, which is uh, at Simbach, Germany, and I was the director, the assistant director of logistics. So now I was supervising people in supply, munitions, maintenance, transportation, contracting, which was good. It was good education into those fields because I was going to end up doing more of that later. Um, and I waited one year. I didn't see anything happening particularly, and there was a job on the USAFE uh, inspector, the IG team, to go around and look at units uh, maintenance. So my boss gave me permission to go do that. I had been on the IG team four months, and my boss mentioned to me that I was going to go to another assignment, which was kind of a shock because when you're on the IG team, it's it's a control tour. You can No one can get a hold of you for two years and so on. They want stability on the IG team. I said, well, where am I going? And they said, well, you're going to go to Spangdalem Air Force Base in, or Air Base in Germany. Spangdalem had a terrible reputation for doing really bad maintenance. They had recently, before I went there, dropped two ECM pods, huge ECM pods, electronic countermeasure pods, in the, in the forest. They had been installed incorrectly. They had fought it, damaged three engines in the same year. Nobody wanted to go to Spangdalem, and I certainly did not. And my boss said, I want you to go to Spangdalma, and I want you to fix all the maintenance problems. <laughs> so that was an exciting time. I was uh, answers to your first question. There was, you know, what was your most challenging? That was certainly the most challenging assignment. From there, uh, we did fix it. I went to Desert Storm with my aircraft. Um, never lost an aircraft. Produced all the sorties. It was a really good time. Um, from there, I went to uh, Guam, the 13th Air Force, and uh, I was in 06 by that time, and I was the director of logistics, so that included maintenance, munitions, transportation, supply, and so on. Uh, from there, I went to AETC for one year. Uh, I was the director of logistics for 19th Air Force. And then there was an opening on the PACAF IG team uh, based at Hickam, and uh, since I'd already been on another IG team, it seemed like a logical move, and so I moved there, and there I was responsible for inspecting all the units in the Pacific. I did that for two years. I thought I might get out and stay in Hawaii. Who wouldn't want to do that? I had 27 years at that time. Uh, 
And I was, again, on an inspection, and my boss said, um, you have an assignment. And I said, this is the second time this has happened to me on the IG team. This is supposed to be a controlled tour. Well, it is, unless a senior officer wants you to move someplace. Oh, well, where am I going? Well, I think it's the Pentagon. And I thought, I don't think I really want to do that at this point. I'll just stay in Hawaii. So I'll get some more information. It turned out it was the commander of the Logistics Management Agency, which was a research agency uh, headquartered in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. And it reported to the Pentagon, so it showed up as a Pentagon job. But it was, it's a very prestigious uh, institute. Um, there's about 60 people working there. Most of them had PhDs. All of them had advanced degrees. And we were studying ways to do things faster, smarter, cheaper. Um, that was no, not necessarily connected to material. We didn't have to buy something new to succeed. There was just procedures that could be improved and so on. So we did. I became the commander of that for my last three years, which was delightful. So that was my maintenance and logistic career all rolled into 30 years. Looking back at your experience, and you, you said it was your most challenging leadership experience, how did you approach that problem when you got to that base in Germany? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the DCM, the 06, I was in 05 at the time, was the one that was theoretically in charge of improving quality. And I saw several things that he had done but after all these accidents and incidents and so on, he was not removed from the job. I was sent there as his assistant. So that in itself was a bit of a challenge uh, to try and implement changes in policy and, and change the environment and the attitude when I wasn't the guy in charge. Now, right when I got there, we had this little discussion. He knew that he was kind of headed out. <laughs> he was not being viewed favorably as a really competent senior maintenance officer. So he kind of stepped back and let me do things that needed to be done. And I had two or three general officers who were communicating with me, and he knew that. And so he sort of gave me opportunity to look around and see whatever I thought I could do. That was a little bit of a weird challenge in the first place. Right after I'd gotten there, we had two, air, two types of aircraft there. We had F4Gs, wild weasels, the oldest um, F-4 still flying in the Air Force, very special capability of finding um, uh, surface-to-air missiles and then taking them out. And then we had F-16s, brand new F-16s, old F-4s, new F-16s, so that's a bit of a challenge. And um, both of those aircraft are being maintained at Spangdalem. Well, one of the... Um, um, one of the incidents that probably helped me get started was in phase, some of the people that were inspecting the aircraft found a, a clamp on a high-pressure um, bleed air that was an F-4 clamp that was put on an F-16. Just absolutely absurd. No one would do that, but there it was. And so um, it was about the sixth incident, some before I'd gotten there and some when I got there, and we shut down the flight line maintenance flying for a day, and I went around to every shop, all the fly line shops, all the back shops, and I said, somebody put this clamp on, and if it had stayed on there, eventually the duct would have separated, the aircraft would have caught fire, and we would have lost the airplane. I said, we can't have that kind of sort of uh, back uh, shade tree mechanics, it was called. We can't have shade tree mechanics. We need to be following tech data. So it was an interesting, uh, my goal was to try and communicate to every person that I could make contact with eyeball to eyeball 
we need to change the attitude about the way we do maintenance here. We can't just do what's uh, easy to do. Um, and so it was, that was the first introduction of most people to me. Okay, so I'm six foot nine, somewhat intimidating. Uh, and I was angry, you know, but not overly so, just letting them know we just could not keep doing these things. And then the second incident occurred. An airplane took off, an F-4 took off from Spangdalem, and they couldn't move the stick. Unfortunately, Bitburg uh, Air Base is about 40 miles away and off the end of the runway at Spangdalem. So the pilot basically held the aircraft. He could move the stick right but not left. And he took the aircraft off and leveled off and then put it down on the runway at Bitburg. Fortunately, I say, because he could have ejected. I mean, he had every reason to eject, but he didn't. He tried to... Um, keep the aircraft and landed it. When he did, he punched the landing gear through the wing, but still it didn't catch fire. We were able to recover it. Well, it turned out that during phase, someone had taken a panel off the wing on the F-4, and there's all these screws, fasteners, that go to put the panel on. And you put them in a bag when you take them off, and you tie the bag to the panel. And when it comes time to put the panel back on, you take those screws, and they're not all the same length, and they're all the same diameter. They have to go into the right holes and so on. Fairly complicated process. But when they went to put the panel back on, the bag was missing. No one knew where the bag of screws was. So the crew chief went into bench dock and said, I need all these screws. And they gave him a reissue of screws, and he put the wing back on, or the panel back on, put all the screws in place. The next flight is the flight that the aircraft flight controls jammed. Because we had the aircraft and we could tear it apart, we found the bag of screws. It was in the wing and all those screws had migrated into the flight controls. So again, it's like, people just don't do this in maintenance. It's just, it's, you know, it's just inconceivable that someone would leave a bag of screws inside and then not account for it. And so, partly because of all those incidents, it was a time to change. And partly, particularly that clamp, I went around to all the shops, people understood there's a new sheriff in town and we're gonna do things differently. So part of it was, you know, putting the fear of God in them, and part of it was painting a picture of, look, we don't have to be here at a unit with a crappy reputation, and we can make this different. And so um, communication, I'd say, and then thinking about one thing at a time, what can we fix, what can we fix, and so on. And little by little, we began to, one, improve the maintenance of the aircraft, and two, improve the reputation of the unit. What do you think caused all those errors to happen? Like, do you think it was more of a leadership issue or a culture issue or a mix? Yeah, that's a great question. I do think it was a leadership issue. For instance, we before I got there, they had fought at three engines. They left a rivet in the intake, a tool in the intake, something, and when the engine starts, it totals the engine. So you have to pull the engine, send it back to depot. Three in a year. Most units never experience a fought at engine. This unit had experienced three. After you have the first one, you think about what are the steps that need to be done so we don't do this again. That had never been done. Once again, this, that's a senior leader problem. It's like you need to think about why things happen and fix them. They had lost two ECM pods. Now, ECM pod is, well, about the size of a telephone pole, and it's, it's about uh, maybe a 12-inch diameter, and it's classified information, classified uh, equipment. It, it goes into the missile bay uh, on the, the forward left missile bay of an F-4 carries the ECM pod there. There's a, an, a bracket that, that links into the aircraft and one that links into the pod, 
And so once you install it correctly, it'll pull six, eight Gs and it won't come off the aircraft. They had dropped two off and they're just not designed to fall off aircraft, you know? And so when we investigated that one, we found out that the person that had installed it had used screws that were the right diameter, but the wrong length. They couldn't find any that were the right length, so they used the ones of the same diameter and put it up there. Well, it didn't have enough threads to catch, so when it pulled two or three Gs, off it came. So, you know, you begin to think about that. I had never been in a unit that had any kinds of incidents or any kind of accidents that had to do with maintenance malpractice. And I, now I'm surrounded by maintenance malpractice. And so some of that just had to be leaders just not taking it upon themselves to fix the problems and, and analyze what was happening and making sure that either the tech order got changed or the supervision got changed and so on. One of the things I instituted as a DCM, I'd seen it before, was my original idea. It was a thing called night court. So if quality assurance went out on the flight line and they found work that was really shoddy, quality assurance is a section of really superior NCOs that the experts and they're looking for quality means. So if they write up a report and it was an unsat, any unsat QA report, of which there were many in the first year, in the evening at six o'clock, I would conduct night court and I would bring in the QA inspector, the person who conducted the maintenance, his supervisor, his or her supervisor, um, the training, some of the people from the training staff, my training staff, and uh, in engineers, if we had them for that particular thing. So there's six or eight people standing at attention. <laughs> they knew that, the, this, that I was unhappy and we were going to fix something. And we would ask the person that did the maintenance, why did you do this wrong? I don't think that had ever been done before. You know, ask the person why he, did the, he or she did the wrong thing. And the primary answer was, I didn't have enough time to do the job right. Really. So then you turn to the supervisor and you say, well, how much time did that job say? In the cards, most maintenance tells you how much time you have. Well, that's a 45-minute job. How much time did you give the airman to do it? Well, we're trying to get this aircraft ready for flight, and he had 25 minutes to do it. Ah, so maybe that might have contributed to it. Sometimes it was an engineering problem, sometimes it was a technical problem, but generally it was a time problem. So that was the first thing we discovered is if the cards say it takes 45 minutes, we're going to give people 45 minutes. Another huge change, maybe the greatest change that I made is an aircraft that goes into phase is supposed to be looked at and fixed while it's there. The cards for an F-4, old F-4, required 12 days in phase to take it apart and look at everything, fix it, clean it up, and make sure it worked. My predecessor had decided that the way to increase the number of maintenance-ready hours to increase our stats was to let the aircraft spend less time in phase. Once again, that doesn't, to me, did not seem like an intuitive decision. So they let, let the aircraft go into phase for 10 days instead of 14. Well, guess what? They weren't fixing everything. It was coming out of phase and was broken. So I got with a senior NCO who was in charge of phase, and I said, these are old aircraft. The cards say 14 days. How many days do you want to fix the aircraft? He said, I need at least 16 days to, to, for the aircraft. I said, all right. From now on, every aircraft that goes into phase is going to get 16, 16 days. However, the first flight, when it comes out of phase, your people are going to launch and recover it and fix any discrepancy after the first flight. In other words, we're shooting for, 
for perfection, you know. And, the, of course, the phase guys, they loved it. Oh, great, we'd love to launch it. Yes, we'd love to do the standard. When we started tearing the aircraft apart that deeply, we found that some of the structural members were cracked, a, a job that we didn't have qualifications to, to fix. I mean, the aircraft was literally coming apart structurally. We had a depot in Germany, and the depot people would come up, and we'd put the aircraft up on jigs, and they would replace structural members. And while they were replacing structural members, we continued to work on the aircraft. So sometimes the aircraft was in phase 20 days or 25 days. But when we started bringing the aircraft out of this major overhaul, the pilots started noticing they'd fly an aircraft that had no discrepancies, zero discrepancies. They'd fly an aircraft five or six sorties, and nothing would be wrong with it. They had never seen aircraft like that before. So we had the full support of the wing commander, the full support of the DO, and we started doing things differently. But the phase was probably the most significant change, and the aircraft started flying amazingly well. So many lessons of like accountability and competence that I think stemmed from that, this experience that all the, all the people who were you know, under your command experienced. Like, that was a big change for them, is being held to the higher standard mm -hmm. and you know, you know, being challenged and, and really looked at it hard and at their like, ability to carry out their job and given the proper time. So I think, uh, I think the maintenance field is something that is easily referenced by people when they talk about honor. And they're like, oh, like, if people pencil whip, then you, get, then you get issues and whatnot. But it does, like, the more that you break it down, sir, it's, it sounds like it's super rich with, with a bunch of those lessons. As a maintenance officer, as a captain, when I owned 24 aircraft, the, the last thing that would happen before the aircraft would fly is I would sign the form saying the aircraft's ready for flight, uh, which meant I went out and looked at the, the write-ups, I looked at the aircraft, made sure everything was ready, and it's called an exceptional release. When a pilot would come out and open the forms, they would look for my signature. If it wasn't there, they weren't going to fly it. So, yeah, huge honor. Now, in my first assignment at Luke Air Force Base, we had some A7s, and we were transferring them down to davis Monthan. We stopped flying them at Luke, and we were transferring them to davis Monthan. And one of the aircraft on its last flight at Luke, came down and had a problem. Normally when aircraft came down, you immediately refueled it, fixed the little problems, and then it was ready for flight. Well, it had a major problem. They didn't want to put fuel in it because they were going to have to jack it. So they didn't refuel it. They fixed the problem, and then the crew chief signed off that discrepancy. The maintenance officer came out the next morning, and the, this was a flight that was going to Tucson, looked at the forms and signed it off. What was missing was that it had not been refueled. The pilot came out and looked at it and saw the maintenance officer's signature, didn't really look at the forms beyond that, got in, fired it up, and took off. 50 miles outside of Phoenix, he flamed out because there was no fuel in the tank. So there were several people that were disciplined for that one, the pr primarily the maintenance officer, who needed to check to see there was refueled for Pete's sakes, you know, and hadn't done that. So yeah, there's. There's a huge responsibility when you're taking care of aircraft that when you say something is done, it has to be done. When your name goes on the forms, it means you checked it. Uh, and when in, you go to a unit where those kind of standards aren't being upheld, uh, it's a long, slow process to, to, um, to change that kind of environment. That kind of brings up the point. This was actually one of the main reasons I asked you to be on this podcast when you came to talk to our class and you were talking about technical writing. 
and talking about how technical writing had to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds a lot like in this, in maintenance, you also have to be perfect. And we brought this little magnet in here for the listeners. It says, (laughs) perfection is our goal. Excellence will be tolerated. So can you talk about kind of um, how that applies outside of the writing and maintenance fields? Yeah, I I don't think that um, that standard um, can ever be set aside. Um, I think that there are some units um, where it never would be thought of uh, as something that could be set aside. Um, I think of OSI, for instance, if they're conducting inspection or investigations and so on, they need to make sure they get every every word correct, their analysis needs to be correct. I mean, you could end up convicting somebody of a crime, you know. Security police investigations will be another place. There's some places where that kind of idea of perfection, uh, there is no other alternative. You never think of any other alternative. Uh, when I was a component repair squadron commander, one of my sections was a section called PMIL, Precision Measurement Equipment Laboratory. And they would receive things like torque wrenches, uh, pressure gauges, and so on. And every year they'd have to certify that they were within standards. And they put their little sticker on that says it's been certified, and they put their name on it. So there's, and, and again, in PMIL, there was, there was just no other standard than perfection. You couldn't measure something and find out, well, it's not quite in, quite intolerance, but we'll, we'll issue it back. You just wouldn't do that. But the larger the organization is, um, and, the, and the less uh, closely supervised some of the sections are, there, there, there can be a malaise that just starts to develop, and you think, well... I just, you know, I, I, we don't need to have this standard as long as I do this. It's okay. And in maintenance and, and really in any other career, if you think about a missile crew that's down there going through their checklist, preparing to, to launch if need be, and say, well, we can skip that step today. That's, we, we never have any problem with that. I mean, you just don't do that. So there's certain career fields where it's just never, never considered that perfection wouldn't be the standards, and others that uh, sometimes through pressure of time or something else, it's set aside for one reason or another. And um, as officers in any career field, those are the things we need to be aware of. How is my unit doing in that area? If a person says, this is true, do you take their word and is it always true? And the more you're convinced that that's happening, the happier you are, the less that you're convinced that that's happening, then you have to find ways to fix that. I certainly think um, USAFA may be one of the places where a lot of cadets think perfection doesn't have to be the standard because they think maybe their actions don't have that big of an impact, but looking at it in the bigger scheme of things, it's pretty clear why it should be. Yeah, it's a goal here. I mean, um, I mean, there's students in high school that are cheating on tests and so on to get in here. You know, I mean, the cheating is becoming more prevalent and, and finding pragmatic, pragmatic ways to get where you want to go. Then they come here, and the standard is, we don't lie, we don't steal, we don't cheat. And there's people that have never experienced that kind of standard before. So here, it's a growing process, it needs to be emphasized and so on, but they need to understand that when they graduate from here, they need to be the standard bearers, because there are places where that is not the standard yet. So we are hoping that every second lieutenant that leaves here realize that among their other responsibilities of doing their job well is ensuring that everyone is doing their job uh, accurately and ethically uh, and, and um, honestly. And so it, that's why it's so important that cadets learn that here, because they're going to be the ones 
that try and establish that kind of atmosphere in whatever unit they go to. It's very well put. Um, can you talk about a time where maybe either you didn't hold up that standard of perfection or you were tempted not to? Yeah, I, I want to preface my comments by saying this didn't happen very often, but this was a terrible, shocking incident that happened once. I've never forgotten it. In my first assignment at Luke Air Force Base, I was an aircraft maintenance unit um, officer, a flight line maintenance officer. After I'd been there three years, I was made the maintenance control officer. So I oversaw the maintenance on in all of the AMUs. We had five AMUs coordinating things like use of the test pad or the sound suppressor or special equipment or whatever. And one of my job responsibilities at the end of the day was to report the status of all the aircraft and send that message to higher headquarters. At the time, the standard was that 60% of your aircraft needed to be fully mission capable at midnight, and by the next morning, the standard was 75%. Uh, the, the unit I was at, Luke Air Force Base, was a training unit. We had old F-4Cs, and they were hard to maintain. We never, ever met the standard of 60% at midnight, 75%. It didn't bother me. We always produced the amount of sorties we needed to, but we didn't meet the standards. Other units had brand new F-15s. We didn't have F-16s then. Um, uh, F, uh, uh, more modern F-4s, the, the D models and the E models. But we had old C models that were coming out of Vietnam and we were using for training purposes. So I was sending this report in. I'd probably done it for about two weeks. And my boss called me in, an old crusty lieutenant colonel. And he said, you know, uh, when I look at this report, um, you don't show that we're at 60% at midnight and 75% at 8 o'clock. I said, no, sir. He said, well, you know, the standard is 60 and 75%. Yes, sir. There's kind of this pregnant silence that I'm thinking, what is this conversation about? And he said, you know, it's important that our wing meet the standards. Yes, sir. He said, we need to make those reports going off base show that we're at 60% and 75%. It was the first time in my life I was like a captain, with a one-year captain, I think I'd been in the Air Force three years at the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's asking me to falsify this report going off, off base to higher headquarters. And I said, I think what you're telling me is you want me to make the report say what the standard is regardless of what the status of the aircraft is. And he, he kind of hemmed and hawed. He said, well, it would be best if that's what were reported and so on. And I had just been in this job a few weeks, and I said, well, I can't do that. I said, you can put me back on the flight line, which I would have loved to do anyway. Or if you keep me in this position, and I'm reporting the status of the aircraft, I need to say what is honestly the status of these aircraft. And he said, oh, I don't want to, I said, I don't want to lose you in the job. I mean, I was doing a good job, and he respected me. He said, all right, you fill out your report, then you send it up to me before it goes out every night. I said, okay. And every night he changed the report and sent it off, showing that we had met the standards. And I was shocked. I mean, here's this old lieutenant colonel thinking, you know, he'd be sort of at the forefront of enforcing standards and no one would do, no one would change stats, you know. If you aren't meeting the standard, saying that you aren't, get you extra help, get you parts, get you more people, saying that you meet the standard says, oh good, well you don't need any help, you don't need more money and so on. I just thought, this is crazy, this is the worst possible thing you could do. And I'm a very junior officer, and I thought when I left the academy, the reason I learned the honor code was because I was gonna enter an organization that everybody lived the honor code. 
So uh, they were preparing us to enter this, you know, sort of homogeneous group of people. It was not homogeneous. There were people that did not had no concept of doing the right thing no matter what. And that's when it gets hard. Is It's easy to follow the honor code and, and, to, and to say the right things and do the right things when things are going well. But if they're not going well, you can hide it, you can lie about it, you know, and so on. Uh, and sometimes you feel like you're the only one that wants to enforce the standard. And that's a really scary thing. So it's probably why didn't forget that incident. When I read that question, I thought, well, this is going to be really easy because I only faced it in a major way once, but it was it was shocking. I just thought everybody believed in honor and didn't ever lie, or especially on an official report, but here were people that were doing it and asking me to do it. So, yeah. We've talked a lot about your career in the Air Force, sir. Um, I, I want to look holistically throughout your entire career and then the, the years following when after you got your doctorate, because mm-hmm. that, that was right after you left the Air, the Air Force, right? So sort of. I, I, my first master's was in international relations, and I knew if I was going to get a PhD in English, I needed to get a master's in English. So right after I exited the Air Force, I worked for Lockheed Martin for a couple of years, and then I went back and got a master's. That took two years. And then I got a PhD, which took six years, so it was a fairly long process. You were at NAU for mm-hmm. two for years. This? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm from Arizona, I'm oh. from Tempe, so it's just, nice. yeah, I, I saw that, I remembered. But um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the most interesting place that your work has taken you? Yeah, well, I, just before, I was at Spangdalem just before Desert Storm started, um, so we deployed some of our aircraft to, um, to Gutter and some to Bahrain, and I was still at Spangdalem, and uh, the wing commander had asked for permission to take one more squad, our last squadron, into Insulik, Turkey, so we'd have attacks from the north and then attacks from the south uh, on Iraq. And so with two weeks, well, maybe not even that long, maybe a week of preparation, they said, all right, take the last squadron and take them to Turkey. So I was at uh, Desert Storm uh, in, at Insulik. Um, we deployed quickly. Uh, we had makeshift places to put the aircraft. That we took Insulik from uh, like 40 aircraft to about 120 aircraft. Um, so that was, it was just all do the best you can, but at the same time keep the standards high. So that was exciting. I mean, I really enjoyed that. I think as a military person, you don't want to go to war. On the other hand, it is what you train for. And so eventually, as odd as it might sound, is that you, you want to go to a war and prove that, you know, you've learned everything you need and you can put it to use at the appropriate time. So I would say that Desert Storm at Insulik was the most interesting. Did you teach at the academy in the 80s, sir? Yes, that was interesting. I I always wanted to come back and teach at the academy, and um, my grades weren't that good when I was here, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. So I, I signed up for a master's degree in international relations, I wrote to the poli-sci department uh, after I finished that and said, I'd like to come back to the academy and teach. I, I just, I love the academy, I love the mission, and I thought I'd like to put in a couple of years teaching here. So um, the poli-sci department said, oh, wow, we'd love to have you come back. So then the maintenance um, officer, flesh peddlers, we called them, the personnel office at Randolph's, saw the application and they said, they used profanity. They said, no, you're not going. Uh, aircraft maintenance is an important field. 
it's a critical field, and it was it was short man. It was about eighty percent Manning uh, most of the years in the seventies and eighties. You're not going. I said, all right, that's fine. So what I didn't know is in those days when you sent your application to the academy, is that it went to the department that you applied for, and then it was sent to the commandant, and then it was sent to the director of athletics. Well, it just so happened that the original fencing coach at the academy, a guy named Nick Toth, was leaving. He'd been there, I don't know, he was my coach, and I don't know how many years he'd been there, 20 maybe, I think. Really interesting guy. And he was retiring, and they were trying to find a, uh, someone to come in and replace him. So the athletic department, unbeknownst to me, saw my application and saw that I had been a fencer, and I had done fairly well. I had, I had won the Westerns, and I had finished, I think, 14th in the nation. So I was a good fencer. And the athletic department said, oh, we want this guy. So they sent the package to the superintendent. The superintendent said, okay, fine. He signed it. And I get orders that say, you have a by-name request to go to the academy and teach. I thought, okay. And the maintenance guys were very not very nice about it. They said, we'll get you for this. <laughs> hey, it wasn't my fault. You already said no. And I agreed. This is a three-star. Get the three-star for this. So, um, yeah, so I came back here and I coached the fencing team. It was the years that we were bringing women into the academy, and we didn't have coaches for all the women's teams. The men would pick up the women's team. Today, there's an overall coach as a men's team and a women's team coach. In fact, they even have additional coaches in the fencing uh, team. So uh, we depended on people that might have had some experience. So there was a Navy lieutenant commander who was teaching poli-sci, and she was the Minnesota state champion in high school in fencing. So she came down and helped with the women's team. So, you know, we did things socially, and she was over at dinner one time, and she said, how did you get here? And, and told her the same story. And she said, well, do you still want to teach in the poli-sci department? And I said, yes. And so she went to her boss the next day. It was Colonel Rocky at the time, now General Rocky. And um, he said, yeah, we'd love to have you teach. So I asked my boss, the director of athletics, would you mind if I went up and taught on the hill? No, that'd be great. We want to have, you know, inter interaction between the departments. So I ended up teaching introduction to international relations, and I coached, and then eventually I was the director of instruction. So, yeah, I had a pretty broad spectrum. Even at that time, I had kind of a broad spectrum of doing different things. <laughs> How does teaching here now compare to then? I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, the one thing about the academy is it's always been a superb academic school. We put out good officers. They do other things. People fly and do other things. But, you know, if you look at U.S. News and World Report every year and see where does the academy rank in terms of engineering schools or aeronautical schools or, or almost anything, it's always in the top ten. So because of that reputation, I think the choice of instructors has always been high, careful. We've always had great faculty, great coaches. Um, so it's, it's very intense, and just getting here as an instructor is an intense, uh, selective process. And I think it's just the opposite of the reputation of Spangdalem. The reputation here is so <laughs> high that people know that they have a very small chance of getting accepted when they apply, and if they do accept, get accepted, then there's this reputation to maintain. So I, I don't think the academics has changed at all uh, over the years. Maybe, well, most likely it's gotten better. One thing that changed is Congress mandated that at least 30% of the faculty needed to be civilians. When I was here, I only had one civilian instructor the entire time I was here, and he was out of the State Department, so he's you know, as a civil servant, he was a government person. 
But now, most of the departments have 30% of their faculty are PhDs, highly competitive to come here. Um, and so I think really in every department, um, the academics standard has gone up and up and up, um, which is tough on you as cadets <laughs> because, uh, you know, the classes are hard and, and you take a lot of classes while you're here. But when you leave here, you'll be happy if you apply going to any grad school or anything you want to do in life. If you say, I was an academy graduate, you could be the last person in your class. They don't care. If you're an academy graduate, it's like, oh, we're interested in you. Because you know things about management and leadership, about ethical behavior and honesty and so on. So, uh, yeah, it, I think the academy is pretty much unchanged, uh, uh, particularly in, in academia. All right, sir, we have some rapid-fire questions to mm. end us off. So, favorite base? Hmm, favorite base. Oddly, Spengdahl. <laughs> <laughs> after three years, when I... When, after the end of my three years, uh, my name was nominated as Best Maintenance Officer of the Year. So I won that award at 17th Air Force and at USAFE, and eventually I was selected as the best maintenance officer in the Air Force in 19-something or other, 90, I think. So you look back and say, oh, I did not want to go there, and it was a painful thing, but I never experienced such gratification as taking a unit that was really broken and turning into a unit that was really good, so spanked all of them. <laughs> Favorite airframe? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I like the F4G. It was a very capable airframe and had tremendous capability to locate SAM sites and, and, and then kinetic uh, devices to take them down. They weren't jamming them. They were putting missiles in the radar. So um, yeah, F4G is an amazing airplane. All right. Any parting shots for the cadet wing? You know, one of the questions you had here is something about leadership. You know, one piece to advice to cadets regarding leadership. I think the most important component of leadership is knowing how to do your job well. You know, that sounds funny. It's like, that doesn't fall into any of the categories like how to speak or how to write or, you know, those things. But the fact that you do your job well, whatever it is, you choose to do your job well, which is kind of an integrity thing. You know, it's like, here's all the pieces of my job. Well, what if I just do 80% of them? But if you can do everything that's required in your job and do it well, it it cause, it gives you an incredible amount of credibility down the chain and up the chain. And that credibility down the chain gives you the ability to lead people that are, that are in your command, in your flight or whatever. So doing your job well, and that means learning your job. You don't learn it instantly, but over time, being known as someone that knows their job well, so well that regardless of what comes up, you're going to have a potential solution to it, I think is the fundamental piece that gives you credibility, that makes you a good leader. And then all the other things are laid on top of that. There we have it, Dr. B. Wright. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you.